0: Ten this morning, Luke ten Luke ten is one of the most famous stories I would say in the definitely in the book of Luke and maybe in the entire Bible. the story of the Good Samaritan. now, if you grew up going to Sunday school at all, you have seen the story of the Good Samaritan. you know what it is now there 's two ways we 're going to look at this first off we 've got a little introduction to get to the point before the actual story of the Good Samaritan happens. But then when we get to the story of the Good Samaritan, we're going to look at it from two different perspectives. So let's just jump right into this. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, let's get a little bit of background here. We have a lawyer coming there in verse 25. Now, a lawyer is not the type of lawyer that you think of today. This is a person that was an expert in the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, etc. So they were an expert when it comes to the biblical matters of that. Now, it's hard to say what this man's heart was. Because in other aspects in the New Testament, you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to Jesus, and the Bible tells us the reason they were coming was to trip him up, to ask him difficult questions, to see if they could try to get a rise out of him or to see what he would say. It looks, according to the context here, that this guy was, was somewhat genuine, wanting to really see. He looked at Jesus as an authority, as a teacher, and said, how do you take this? Now, every time I teach through this, my opinion changes. So as of right now, this is what I think. The next time I teach, I don't know, I may look at it differently. But I think this guy seems to be somewhat sincere. Verse 25, a legit question. Teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That's a legit question. Boy, we get to ask that all the time. Maybe not those words, but for thousands of years people have asked that. What do I have to do to be saved? What does it mean to go to heaven? What is hell about? All these questions about eternity and heaven and hell and people wanting to know the final destination. 2,000 years ago, the guy wanted to know, what do I need to do to live forever, have eternal life? So the response, verse 26, Jesus asks a question. You've heard us say this out here many times before. Whenever Jesus asks a question, pay attention. He's not asking a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking a probing question. By Jesus asking a question, he's having this guy think. What is written in the wall? What is your reading of it? What's your take on it? Boy, I do that all the time. Someone comes up and they says, here's the scenario, what do you think I should do? My great counseling technique is usually ask them, well, what do you think you should do? Nine times out of ten, they already know what they're supposed to do. Since they already know what they're supposed to do, now we can get to the application of it. Now let's go do it. That's the hard part. So Jesus says, what's your take on? So he gives this great answer, verse 27. This is out of Deuteronomy. This is the heart and soul of the law. All those books of law, Deuteronomy, Exodus, etc., all those verses are summed up in these two passages. Verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Two things, love God completely, love other people. That's how you sum up the law. How simple is that? Love God completely, love other people. Now, if you do those things, verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. That's how you get eternal life. Now, that's obviously not real easy. Now, don't stone me when I say this, but I heard a pastor say this one time. Just hear me out. He says, Christians get it wrong. Christians all the time say there's only one way to get to heaven. And they say, Jesus, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He says, that's the only way to get to heaven through Jesus. And he says, Christians are wrong. There's actually two ways to get to heaven. The first way is through Jesus. The second way is to live a perfect life and never sin. Now, that's the problem, is you can't do number two. Jesus is saying here in verse 28, hey, you're right. Do this and you'll live. He can't do it. It's impossible to do verse 27. Jesus is saying, you are right. You do those things and you will live. But it's also impossible. Look at verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your innermost being focused on God. Love him with all your soul. That's an eternal love with all your strength. Every action you do is for the Lord. And love him with all your mind. You're constantly dwelling and thinking on him. That's impossible. I encourage you to do that for one day. Love him with everything in your heart. Love him with every thought you have. Love him with every action you do. Love him for all of eternity where nothing of the world tempts you and brings you down. You you can't do it. As soon as you have that one thought of lust, you're out. As soon as you have that one word you shouldn't say in anger, you're out. As soon as your mind wanders off the Lord and all the things of the flesh, you're out. It's impossible. But what Jesus was saying is you do this and you'll live. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, come on. Have a complete godly love for every neighbor you have. See, the guy knew there was something up with this. Because verse 28, Jesus says, you're right, do it, you'll live. Guy comes back in verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, the guy knew there was a little more to this story. Well, Okay, well, what's this mean? That phrase, justify himself, I see this all the time. If you've got kids at home, you know your kids try to justify things. I don't know how many times the boys will come up and say something to the fact of, Dad, do you care if we go downstairs and do something? I don't care. Go ahead. Go downstairs and do something. So you don't care if we go downstairs and do something? Well, now you're making me wonder. What's, what's the do something? Well, you said we could go downstairs and do something. Yeah. Okay, now tell me what the do something is. You're justifying yourself. This, this is how we do. This is how we do it. The guy knew something else was up. So his clarifying question in verse 29 is, Who's my neighbor? I mean, I like the guy to my left, I like the guy to my right, but the guy across the street's a little bit of a jerk. Do I need to love him? No, neighbor, does that mean everybody I work with? Because there's people at work I don't really like, and they're not really my neighbors. Actually, I'm the only person that lives on my mile. So, I mean, it's really easy. See, he's trying to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? Because I want to get this all right. Here's the problem with somebody that runs their life according to the law and legalism. You're always dotting your I's. You're always crossing your T's. You're always making sure everything's right because you live in this burden of legalism, of I have to do this right, and if I don't do it right. See, I'd much rather walk in grace and mercy. This guy had to know who's my neighbor, because that's the people I need to love, and I need to make sure I'm doing this right. So to answer the question of who's his neighbor, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, we're going to go through and talk about the practical way of applying this. Then we're going to talk about the spiritual example of this. Verse 30, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took the two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Now, that's a great story. We, Like I said, I bet the vast majority have heard this before sometime. This is a very famous Sunday school story. The guy's walking down. He gets robbed. He gets beaten. These people come. Two don't help him. One helps him. It's a great example of just love, just unconditional love. So you've got to know a little bit of a background here. This Samaritan, if you've ever studied out the New Testament, the Samaritan, the Jews, hated each other. And I wish I could think of an example to show you how much hate they had. Just a hate for each other. See, the Samaritans were a mixed race people. They were the northern tribes of Jerusalem. In 722 BC, Assyria came down, defeated them, and started intermingling with them. And so what happened is they started intermarrying, and so the northern tribes became this mixed race of Assyrians and Jews. So the Jews looked at them and despised them. And so there became this break between them to the point where just the Samaritans started creating their own worship, if you will. They created their own temple area, if you will. And so the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. So much so that a Jew, wanting to get from point A to point B, if that took him through Samaria, would purposely walk miles and miles out of the way. There's a hate here. So, for the Samaritan to show love, what's that teaching us? Unconditional love. Love your enemies. Jesus summed it up in Luke six twenty seven: Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who curse you. Pray. You know, that's Christianity at its finest is I'm going to love the people that hate me now the problem is as Christians we fail in that oh my goodness do we fail in that because what happens is we see somebody as an enemy Lord they, they, they stand against what the Bible says they stand against what the truth says they're trying to destroy this they're trying to destroy morality they're trying to destroy this and they're an enemy of the gospel okay love them pray for them bless them Do good to them. See, what happens is we reach a point where we think they are such an enemy of God that I now have a green light to be angry and hate them and be... No, you don't see that in the Bible anywhere. You can hate the actions they could do. You can hate the stances they have. But we are called to a higher calling of loving our enemies no matter what. Now, that's tough to do. And i got to be honest with you, as Christians, we should know this more than anybody But yet we fail in this more than anybody. So the first example is unconditional love. The Samaritan is the one that stops and helps him. Now point two, verse 30. This guy's dumb. This road that he's walking on was known as the bloody way. It was about 15, 20 miles long going downhill rocky road you went downhill about a half mile total descent and it went like I said about 15-20 miles from uh, Jericho to Jerusalem what in the world was he doing that by himself this is a place for ambush they'd known for centuries thousands of years that this was a dangerous road this guy shouldn't have done this what was he thinking walking that way by himself what was he thinking walking alone that way why was he doing that It's his fault. See, this is also where Christians drop the ball. Oh, my goodness, look at the choices they've made in life. It's their bed. They should lie in it. Look at what they've chosen to do. It's not my job to go in there and pick up their pieces. They created this lifestyle. They chose this lifestyle. So therefore, you know what? That's just their fault. And so what we do as Christians, we completely ignore them because that's just the best way for them to learn. Hard mercy. You know what? Sometimes that may be true. (coughs) But a lot of times, it's our calling to go to the wounded of the world and help them. And leave all judgment aside. And look at it as a ministry opportunity to go meet somebody at their lowest spot in life and say, everybody else may have given up on you, but I don't. We had an in-service a couple years ago out here at church, and somebody made the comment one time of Christianity is messy. And boy, that really hit me. If, If you don't want to get your hands dirty then you don't want to be a Christian. Because the purpose of Christianity is we go meet people and their struggles and their problems where they're at and we get down on their level and say, the world may have given up on you, but I'm not going to give up on you because we love you. See, what did religion want to do with this guy? Look at verse 31, the priest passing by the other side. Verse 32, the Levite. A Levite was a member of the tribe of Levi so they could help in the temple, but they were not a descendant of Aaron, so they couldn't be a priest. They pass on by... See, that's what religion does. Religion sees you hurting. Religion doesn't have the answers. And religion just passes you by. Now, I always knew this, this idea of passing by. And I can remember, once again, growing up as a kid in Sunday school. I can remember my great-aunt Phyllis. And she truly was my great-aunt. And she had the flannel board. And she would do the story of the Good Samaritan. And I can remember on her flannel board, she had the guy that was hurt on one side... Now, when he was hurt, he had like a little blood on his elbow, a little blood on his head. And he's laying there with his hand out. So he's on one side of the flannel board. And then the priest comes, and he's on the other side of the flannel board. And she doesn't let him get anywhere as close to each other on the flannel board. You know, That's the point, walking by. Now, you always remember that as a kid. But then I remember one time seeing an actual, I guess, story of this that was made, a TV movie or what have you. And the way they presented it it was probably more realistic. The road's not that big. A flannel board looked pretty big. The road's not that big. This guy is just not like a little owie on his elbow. <laughs> this guy is hurt. This guy, verse 30, is half dead. And, and the priest, now you got to imagine, the priest. The priest is probably dressed in his priestly garb. I mean, this guy looks good. I mean, the priest is walking down the road. He sees the man. This road is not m- wide, He has to purposely, verse 31, go to the other side of the road. What a visual that was for me to see this man dead and dying and to see supposedly a priest of God purposely go around him. Look at this once again, verse 31. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, the Levite, he came and looked and passed by on the other side. Christians, we do that all the time. We see somebody hurting in the world. And we just don't want to deal with it. And we pass by on the other side. Instead of stopping and getting our hands dirty in ministry. It is much easier to do nothing than it is to do something. And we use all the excuses we can think of. You know what? Well, it's not my calling. I don't know what to say. I don't know what I would do. It's his fault for walking down the road by himself. What was he thinking? I tell you, religion leaves you empty. I was just talking to someone not that long ago, and the subject came up of religion. And this, and this person was looking for answers and really struggling. And I knew he had the religious background, and I talked to him about that. And I asked him about this religious background that he had. He had. And I asked him, where do you get your peace? Where do you get your joy from? Where do you think you're going to go when you die? And I said, why? Why? Well, he thought because of what he did and his religion that he was going to get there. And I said, where'd that religion get you? I said, it got you right to where you're at right now. Nothing. Half dead. Spiritually dead. See, that's what religion does. It just leaves you alongside of the road and doesn't do anything for you. So once again, the good Samaritan, the enemy, unconditional love, comes, takes him, helps him. Doesn't just help him, verse 34, gets down beside him, bandages his wounds, helps him, lets him go on his own animal, verse 34. Takes him, verse 35, and says, I will pay for this guy. I will personally take this on my own, and this is my responsibility to minister to this person. Verse 36. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Simple application. Love your enemies. Do good to everybody. There's a great passage in Proverbs 3. If you're taking notes, write it down. Proverbs 3, 27. Do not withhold good what's in your power to do so. Do not withhold good when it is in your power to do so. If you have an opportunity to do good, get out there and do it. Do something. Now, with that idea, let's talk about the other side of this. See, I was doing some studying on this, and the one guy, the one pastor, I'll give credit for credit to, his name is John Corson, love him as a pastor there, and he made a comment about how in verse 30 that that man... Stripped and dying along the road is a picture of us. And the Samaritan is a picture of Jesus. And I thought, wow, what a neat thing. And just look how this all comes together. Verse 30, that's you and me. We've made dumb choices in life. We shouldn't have been walking down that road. We shouldn't have been walking down that path. We walk down the road and path of life. We're stripped of everything. We're wounded. We're now laying aside the road. We're dead and dying. Look at that phrase, verse 30, half dead. Physically, we're alive, but spiritually, we're dead. We're half dead. Have you not ever made choices in life that have left you broken and bruised and bloodied and battered along the side of road of life? And you had nothing. You and I are this guy walking down this road. Of course we made stupid choices. We shouldn't have done that. We make dumb choices all day, all the time. God forgive us. Some of them are bigger than others. This morning I got out, I was getting ready to go out and start the car to come out here to church. I grabbed my ear things or grabbed my gloves to go out and get the car ready. Dawn bought me these new gloves for Christmas, the best pair of gloves I've ever had in my life. Go out there, and so I start the car, I'm scraping off the snow, I'm doing everything, car gets completely scraped off, and I'm getting done after doing this for a few minutes, and it, my, my hands are freezing. You know why my hands are freezing? Because I never put my gloves on. I just had them in my pocket. I have this great pair of gloves, and they're in my pocket. I'm out here scraping snow off, and I don't put my gloves on. So I realize how smart I am, so I get in the car and then I put my gloves on. You know, we all go down this road of life where we make choices we shouldn't have and we're left at the bottom of the road, stripped and beaten and broken and bloodied, half dead. Who's going to help us? Well, verse 31, religion's not going to help you. It's going to leave you alongside the road. Verse 32, religion's not going to help you. It's going to leave you alongside the road. Finally, verse 33, your enemy's going to help you. Now, what I mean by your enemy, for some of you, think back before you got saved. You looked at Jesus as the enemy. You hated what he stood for. You felt convicted any time they brought up Jesus. You didn't want to go to church. You didn't want to hear it. You didn't want to hear about God. You didn't want to hear any of it. You looked at him as the enemy. He was a Samaritan to you. I've shared with you before that it was my junior year in high school when I got saved, and you know, Jim had witnessed to me for, for two years, and those two years that he witnessed to me, my freshman sophomore year, I couldn't stand it. Just couldn't stand it. I didn't look at it as this man trying to show love, grace, and compassion. I looked at it as a frustration. Well, same thing here. How many times have you tried to minister to somebody, represent Jesus to them, and instead you come across as the enemy? But it's the enemy that becomes your friend. And verse 33, the Samaritan comes. Religion's left you high and dry in verses 31 and 32. Samaritan comes and shows you compassion. This word for compassion is fascinating. This word for compassion is used 12 times in the Bible. And in every context, it's used only in the context of either Jesus or in a parable where the person in the parable represents Jesus. This word is not used in other places in the Bible for, for everyday use for us. We use the word compassion a lot, but this is a deep, meaning word of where you get in someone's life and show love. The only way that you and I can show compassion to somebody is when Jesus Christ lives inside of us and the Holy Spirit works in our lives. I'm not capable of showing compassion to my enemies. I'm not capable of showing compassion sometimes even my loved ones. It's only through Christ can there truly be compassion. So Jesus is representative of the Samaritan. and Look what he does in verse 34. He bandages our wounds How many of you came to Christ scarred, beaten, broken? He bandages our wounds, pours oil and wine. Oil in the Bible represents the Holy Spirit. Wine represents communion, fellowship with God. So he not only heals us of our wounds, he gives us the oil of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and he also gives us the wine of communion. We have fellowship with God. sets us on his own animal, verse 34. Jesus carries me. He doesn't get me up and say, okay, now you walk. Jesus says, no, I will carry you. He does it for me. Brings me to the end where they take care of him. Now, you've got to be careful with these spiritual points. Because I've heard pastors sometimes teach on things, and they got a really good thing going, and then all of a sudden they want every little aspect to fit into everything. So they start stretching some of these points. I don't want to stretch this too far, but I was thinking about this. I was, okay, well, then what's the end? Well, isn't the end almost representative of us, the church? Jesus takes the half-dead people, heals them up spiritually, gives them the spirit, gives them the communion of fellowship, and then he brings them to the church. And he says, okay, church, it's now your ministry to take care of these people. And he goes, I will pay you to do it. In verse 35, take care of them. When I return, I will repay you. See, see, our job as a church is to minister to the broken people that Jesus brings in And then when Jesus returns, which he's going to return, Jesus says, I'll repay you for what you did. It's a beautiful picture of what our job is, is to take these wounded, bandaged people in life, take care of them through what? Verse 35, through the gifts that God gives us. See, he left it to us. And then Jesus says, I will repay you for all the time, energy, and effort you put into people and the ministry that comes out of that. It's a beautiful picture of what our job is. I tell you, you're either, verse 30, laying along the road, beaten, battered, bloodied, and nothing can help you. Or, hopefully not, I hope you're not one of the Levites or the priest. You're so high on yourself and religion that you can't bother to stop and minister to somebody. Hope we're in the end taking care of people and ministering to them, which Jesus the Samaritan brings to us. There's a lot of neat pictures in this. And he sums it up so simply. Verse 36. So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Do you ever realize Jesus' marching orders are always so simple? Go and do likewise. Go show unconditional love to everyone you meet, even the people. That you can't stand, even the people that can't stand you. Go and get your hands dirty in life. Go to those people that are half dead alongside the road and minister to them. Love them. Show love to them. When the Lord brings you in a bandaged, wounded person in life, be the innkeeper that helps them. Don't allow that religion of being a Levite or a priest to keep you from getting involved in people's life. Christianity is supposed to be involved. We're supposed to be in people's life, ministering to them, showing love to them. Like I said, it's messy. Now, flip with me, if you will, to uh, the book of James. Just a couple final thoughts on this before we close up. James 2. Because the subject comes up. The guy was walking down the road, which was really not a smart thing to do. We talked about that verse in Proverbs of, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to do so. See, the problem is we look at that word deserve and we say, well, I don't think this person deserves it. I've looked and analyzed this situation as you're going to James 2 and I don't think this person deserves to have James Irvin come into their life and minister to them. See, the problem is we think we get to choose who is deserving of ministry. I'm an ambassador of Christ, the Bible says. As an ambassador of Christ, I represent Jesus. Jesus tells me, who deserves ministry? And then I just go do what he says. It's not your place to determine who you get to serve. It's your place to go serve those that God reveals to you. we got to be careful that sometimes as Christians, we look at somebody hurt and we say, well, once again, they've made this bed, they lie on it. They don't deserve to have that help. we got to be careful about that. Because look what James says. James 2 verse 14 What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There is an element of doing in our walk with the Lord, that we have a responsibility to go out there and do you know, It says in the book of Luke, give to everyone who asks of you. I've shared with you before that if I, I see somebody in the Walmart parking lot that has the sign that says, need food, will work for food, I try to carry with me little $5 McDonald's gift cards, and I'll go over and I'll give them one and say, in the name of Jesus, I give this to you. If I see the guy sitting outside the street, and he's got the sign with the hat in front of him, and he says, need money for food, whatever, I'll throw some change in there. Now, that's my burden. That's what I'm called to do, and I know that. Now, some of people may stop and say, I'm never doing that. Some of you are thinking, James, you know what that guy's going to do with that money, don't you? He's going to go buy beer. He's going to go buy alcohol. He's going to go buy drugs. You're basically just doing that and helping him out to do things that you know that. See, I don't know what he's going to do with it. I know that in the Lord, I know me personally. and Let me stress that, me personally. That's what I'm supposed to do. Now, what they do with that gift, they're accountable to God on it. Now, so does this mean in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17? Anytime anybody needs anything, you're required to do whatever they say. Don and I were leaving a baseball game one time, and I can't remember if it was down in Cincinnati or if it was down in Atlanta. And as you leave the ball game, there's all these people sitting there, and I can't think of the politically correct word, so forgive me. There's all these beggars sitting there. And they all sit there, and they all have something in front of them. Sometimes they got a couple... Cheap pairs of drumsticks and a five-gallon bucket overturned, and they're just doing something. And, you know, they're asking for money. And, you know, you stop and you go. I know this, so I take a pocket full of change with me. And I just change, change, change. Get to this one guy, and I've shared this story through before. He has a sign, and his sign says something to the effect of, I'm not going to lie, I'm just going to buy beer. (laughs) Now, I didn't give him anything. Now, other people stopped. They wouldn't help the other one, so they would help them, him. There's wisdom. See, the problem is, to get the full context, there's 66 books of the Bible. I could come and just read you verses 14 through 17 and say, okay, give to everyone who asks of you. You're going to spend the rest of your life chasing your tail because you're going to get marked and everybody and their brother is going to come to you. There's also godly wisdom. Somebody comes up and says, hey, I'm struggling. Um... I don't know. I need 20 bucks to get my gas tank filled up. I got to go to town. I got to get food for the kids. I got to get the medicine. I got to do this. Yeah, I'll do that. Let me meet you up at Hamler or Rich will meet you up at Hamler. Here we go. Let's get some gas in your tank. Now, hey, I need 20 bucks for gas. Why? Well, I really don't need gas. I just want to go buy beer with it, but I'm just going to tell you I need 20 bucks for gas. No, there's wisdom. See, let the Lord lead in its situation and, and uniqueness. But also remember what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. I see too many Christians that have this amazing spiritual gift that's not anywhere in the Bible, and I wish I could see it, find it, but they can read minds. And they know what everybody's going to do. And I don't know how they've gotten this spiritual gift, but I'm jealous of them, because they tell me what people are going to do even before they do it. Well, I know what they're going to do with that. Oh, my goodness, how do you know that? They just know it. Be careful, because you don't know everything. Don't lean on your own understanding. If the Lord is opening a door for you to minister, go minister. If it's not the type of person you would normally minister to, then just be a Samaritan. Show love to the unlovables. This is not the person you would normally hang out with. He's wounded and bandaged and beaten and broken by the road. Go show love. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ that is sent by Christ And do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your ability to help. Proverbs 3.27. That may mean in your heart softening up a little bit of who you are. Jesus is the ultimate example of I will die for those people that don't even want me to die for them. But at the same point too, wisdom. Wisdom in knowing where the Lord's leading and what the Lord is leading to do. When you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, you see a practical application of getting out there in life and making a difference in people's lives. You see that. Help us to get out there and show that love to everyone we meet and everyone we run to and the wisdom of the Lord. Marvin Kelly, if you guys want to come forward here for the final song.